0: Good morning. Welcome once again. Welcome home, family. I'm so glad to see everyone here worshiping with us on this fine Sunday morning. <clears throat> we are continuing a series in 1 Thessalonians and then to 2 Thessalonians. So if you want to, you can flip into your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's where we will be in a bit. Uh, But no worries if you uh, don't have your Bibles with you, it'll be on the screen behind us as well. But before we dive into God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can open up your Word, that we can know you through it, that we can see how you have brought people to believe in you, to have faith historically but also how we've seen these churches how we can see churches form and develop and what is required of us and I pray for this time as we open up the word as we read it we can see you but we also can see what you call us to how we should be formed and how we should be grown so Lord I just pray for this time that you can bring it to life in our hearts and our minds and that we can know you and I pray all these things in Jesus name Amen. So there she sat, looking at me through tears in her eyes, as she was talking about how she felt that she had missed out on God's will for her life. She talked about how she came to this choice in her life, and how she could either become an educator and go this way, or she could have entered into ministry serving a church, and yet she chose to go into education, and because of that choice, she was under this belief that somehow she was now on plan B for what God would have her do. And because she had not followed what God had told her to do or what she felt like God had, was leading her to do, but she chose another way, she felt like now her life would be not as blessed. Things wouldn't work out as well. She thought she was kind of on that sub-tier track. What she really was suffering from was a misunderstanding of God's will. There's an idea that's prevalent through our society and with our churches that somehow God has this will, this, this plan designed for everyone, and we have to discover it. What's insidious about this is that the first half is true. That God does have a plan for us, that God knows what we're going to do, that God is orchestrating events in history to place us exactly where we are, to be his people where we are. But yet, we add the second part where somehow we have to discover it and walk the straight and narrow. And if we don't, we fall to plan B or plan C and we'll live a less blessed life somehow. This thought, I would argue, is not what the Bible tells us about God's will. This thought that somehow we are supposed to discover this secret will, I think can actually be damaging to us because we start worrying about the mistakes we make because guess what? We all make mistakes. And we all choose to do things we know we are not called to do. So when we're thinking about God's will, we first and foremost have to go back to the Word of God to see what He tells us, to see how He defines it. And when we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we see expressly what is God's will for His people. And we see principles we're supposed to put into place for our lives to follow God. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. As we seek to find out what God would have us do. It says, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger, and all these things, as we have told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called you for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before the outsiders and be dependent on no one. What do we take from this passage in 1 Thessalonians? I just offer this, that we're called to walk in God's will. He calls us to walk as we have first received Christ, to walk this out, and that God has given his declared will to us that we are supposed to walk and what are we supposed to do when we read this? Is We hear this call that Paul is making to all Christians, to these Christians in Thessalonica, but also to us. We're to walk in God's will. That when we read what he wants us to do, we walk that out. When we read on how we're supposed to respond in faith, we walk that out. When we read this, we respond with all of who we are, Says this is how I'm going to live. I'm going to walk in God's will. But that gets back to that question that we got kind of raised at the beginning of what is God's will and how are we supposed to understand God's will? And we see throughout the Bible that uh, the Bible uses God's will in these kind of fundamental ways. We, we can read verses that seem to indicate that God's will is always done. And this is his, his will of decree. Because God is sovereign. He's in charge. He's the Lord and ruler of the universe. And so what he wishes to happen, happens. What he wills to happen, happens. And we read passages like uh, Ephesians 1.11, which says, In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We read passages like in Isaiah 46, Nine through ten, which says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. This is God's will of decree that He is in charge, that He has control. Jesus taught about this when he taught in Matthew 10:29-30, when he says, "Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? But even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not; for you are more valuable. You have more value than many sparrows." So we see that God's will, it happens. God's in control. But we also know when we read the Bible, we have many, many commands that God calls us to follow. And this is God's will of desire, his, his, his revealed will, that he actually calls his people to live a certain way. And he wants us and he desires us to do that. And we see command after command to follow this so That's another understanding of how we follow God's will, is that we read the Bible, he commands us to respond, and so we do it. But lately, lately, I don't know, probably for a long time, people have tried to add this other thing, this will of direction. This belief that somehow God has this blueprint somehow secretly swirled somewhere, and we have to find it, and if we don't, we're going to be outside of his will. I would argue that is not what we find in the Bible. We find his declared will for us, and we follow it as he leads us through the Spirit, reminding us, pointing us back to the Word. There's a, a, a pastor and author, Kevin DeYoung, who basically wrote a whole book about this whole topic called Just Do Something. And I think he sums it up so well about these different thoughts. So I just want to quote him because uh, he really just sums up this idea of how we are supposed to think about God's will. He says, Trusting in God's will of decree is good. Following his will of desire is obedient. Waiting for God's will of direction is a mess. It is bad for your life, harmful for your sanctification, and allows too many Christians to be passive tinkers who strangely feel more spiritual the less they actually do. God is not a magic eight ball we shake up and peer into whenever we have a decision to make. He is a good God who gives us brains, shows us, how, shows us the way of obedience, and invites us to take risks for him. We know God has a plan for our lives. That's wonderful. The problem is we think he's going to tell us the wonderful plan before it unfolds. We feel that we can know and we need to know what God wants every step of the way, but such preoccupation with finding God's will, as well intended as the desire may be, is more folly than freedom. The better way is the biblical way. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then trust that he will take care of our needs even before we know what they are and where we're going. That God, what is God's will for us is to read and know Him through His Word. To trust Him, that He is in control. To look at actually how He has declared how we should live, and then we follow that. That really, to sum it up, that we love God, and then we do what we want. Some people might bulk at that and say, well, that just seems so lackadaisical and loose. But how easy is that? And that's what faith is. Faith is actually so easy because we trust God. If we love God, if you orient your life towards God, focus on him, following his word, you love him, what you want to do would be walking in his will. And that's how we find God's will for our life, that we walk in his ways. We walk in God's will, be obedient to him. If I haven't sold you on how that definition of God's will, I have some free copies of this book that might help sell you on that. But it's the truth that I believe we find in the Bible. I do have five copies of this book. If anyone wants them after service, you're welcome to them, as long as you promise to read it. So it's yours, the first five. But we're called from this passage to walk in, in God's will. And so when we read this, the first fundamental thing we see, I believe, is that God reveals his will to us. It it says this right at the beginning. It says, finally then, brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, his will, and to please God, how he wants you to live, just as you're doing, do it more and more. That God actually has revealed his will to us. He revealed what he wants us to do. That he's told us what we want to do. That he, he actually lays out these commands that we're supposed to walk in. It's the foundation of what we could call Christian ethics. That Christians behave differently than the world. Nowadays, that might be a crazy thought. But it's the truth of Scripture. That when you are called to Christ, when you're called to follow God... You follow not as the world follows or how the world lives, yet You actually follow as someone who's been transformed from the inside out. How your heart has been changed. Now before you longed for your own desires and you pursued your own ends and you puffed up yourself, now as a believer, you are fundamentally changed with a heart that beats for God. That what he wants, you want. That what he desires, you desire. That you long to see other people know his gloriousness and so be transformed as well. That God actually has laid out how we should live and the Christian now walks in that. It's amazing though because there's pushback against this thought. There's pushback because so many of us might have experiences with legalism. This idea that somehow you earn, you achieve, you pick yourself up by the bootstraps, you do better, you can just grit it and accomplish it. And somehow by doing that, you can put yourself in God's good graces. That's not what we're talking about. People uh, push back against this because they want to separate belief and living. Somehow they take humanity and say, oh, you can believe one thing and act out something completely different. As we see, that's not how we're called to live. People want to push back against this because we are great compartmentalizers, are we not? We can take Sunday and put a nice little bow and then live the rest of the week without regard to what we did then and vice versa. People want to separate what should be connected, and when we read the Bible, we see this response that This is not legalistic. We're not saying, hey, earn and achieve and do to somehow gain God's good pleasure. We're saying as a response to how he has loved you when you're a sinner, as a response to this new life he has given you, now we live for him. Actually, the fact that we have a new life in Christ requires that we have a new walk in Christ. The fact that we have been changed requires that we now live like him. That God reveals his will and we can know it through reading his word and we're called to walk in God's will. And one of the great motivations that he gives us for this is that he calls it to please God. He's given us these, he's given us these ways in living, how we ought to walk, and this is to please God. That when we respond with a life, sold out for Christ, we can please God in some way. Isn't that amazing? We've got to protect ourselves and say, well, somehow we don't, we don't make God love us more. That's impossible. If we're like, like, that, like easy slip it back into legalism, legalism, we somehow feel if we do more, he'll love us more. No, that's not what it's talking about. This is the, the he loves us as much as possibly can because he saved us in Christ. But now when we walk in his ways, we're like the child who brings a hideous picture to the parent. And the parent who couldn't possibly love this child anymore looks at this picture and is moved somehow that they love them enough to respond in that way. I can't help but think that's a, a appropriate picture in some way. Obviously not the full picture. When we respond in faith, walking in the ways of God, we please him as he sees us living out what he's called us to do. When we start thinking about how to please God, and this is to please God, actually is, is, a, is a really radical concept. Radical meaning, you know, radical has that root definition, back to the root. That radical means you're getting back to the core of the issue, And so to please God is radical in that we're actually digging down and saying, why are we trying to live out God's will? Why are we trying to please God? And at the root of it, it should be because we want to walk in his ways to please him. That we want to have that relationship with our God. It gets to the root of it. All these other motivations should fall by the wayside that we want to know him and be known. And to please God is actually a, a very flexible concept because it points us towards that relationship with God rather than a list of do's and do nots. Because when we read God's will, and when we see how God wants us to walk in his ways, if we quick to do a list of do's and do nots, it becomes stagnant, it becomes about checking off the boxes, and it becomes about how well we can check those boxes. But if we're seeking to please God, it becomes flexible because we want that relationship and we naturally spawn to please that person. Which makes for a better spouse? The spouse who sits down and makes a list and says, this is the best spouse, I'll do all of these things. Or the spouse who loves their other and says, because I love them, I'll just start naturally doing those things. When we want to please God, it actually is flexible and allows us to respond to him in the moment and not worry about checking boxes of do's and do not's. When we want to please God, we want to grow in those ways in which we follow God, walking in his revealed will through scripture, seeking to serve him. God reveals his will to us through the word of God. To walk in God's will. So what is God's will for us? Paul says it. Your sanctification. I, I would take probably that, that, just that little line, God's will for you is this, your sanctification, as kind of like the, the umbrella through all other things in which how we're supposed to walk in His way. That God's will for us is us growing in holiness. Sanctification just means that we're growing, becoming more and more like Christ. It means we're actually putting into practice what we believe, and we're starting to change how we walk in this world, and we're growing in that. What is God's will for his people? To grow in his ways. To be more like his son. To seek to serve and love and proclaim like he calls us to do it. What is God's will? Us to grow and become like Him. To put in practice what we believe. And then Paul, I believe, gives us these, these, these kind of areas in which we are sanctified or which we should be practicing our faith. And so we're called to walk in God's will and one of the big areas he says, actually the area he spends the most time is is we're supposed to walk in God's will in our purity, in our sexual purity. What a timely topic for our society today. I don't know if you've noticed this. We live in an over-sexualized society. You can't watch a show without being confronted with either something that you shouldn't be confronted with, or a love scene, or nudity, or anything, or even hints of it, into windows of all sorts of the sexual nature that we live in, the super-sexualized culture that we are living and breathing with, that the world wants anything and everything with no limits to be normalized, and we are called, when we read the Bible, to a different ethic, to a different standard, to a different understanding. The world calls us to go towards this that it's hard even to process anything from what the world gives us without being confronted with how different it is than how God calls us to live. And even there's people who push it so much that they will argue that if you don't allow some sort of sexual fulfillment and completion in whatever way they want, that you're saying that people can't be fulfilled human beings. They put sex as the end-all, be-all. They put that as what brings ultimate fulfillment. But that's not how the Bible sees humanity. The Bible makes it very clear that sex is a good gift to his people. It's a good thing that should be celebrated in the right context. But just like everything, sin takes it, corrupts it, expands it, and it gets out of control. And so the Bible makes it very clear that people have taken this good gift of God and they're using it inappropriately and that you are making the end-all be-all when it's just an aspect of what it means to be human. And that really this idea that somehow being sexually fulfilled gives you the most fulfillment or is the end-all be-all of humanity comes face-to-face with the truth of who Jesus Christ is and it's defeated. For you cannot think of a human being that has more fulfillment, more completion, more contentment with who he is than Jesus Christ. And he did not pursue sexual fulfillment as he walked this world. So we see that the Bible comes face to face with this idea of what life is and shows us the truth of God's will that we are called to Purity. We're called to walk in ways that are different than the Gentiles who give themselves over to passionate lust. We're called to something different. As we see in verse 4, we're called to how we're supposed to live, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Containing there is this assumption that you who do know God are called to live in a way that is fundamentally different than those who don't know God. And one of those fundamental ways is that we control our own bodies and and holiness and honor for the glory of God. That we seek to put sexual passions and urges actually under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And understand how he rules and operates. And when we take the whole biblical example, we see the context of what that looks like is in marriage of one man and one woman together. That is where God has ordained and given this sexual fulfillment to be. Now anything else else out of there would be what the Bible calls sexual morality or porneia, where we get pornography from. That the fulfillment or where sex should operate is in this context of marriage between one man and and one woman. And even that context has a style in which it should be operating. It should be operating with holiness and with honor. That again, even when we're seeking to enjoy the good gift of God, we do it in a way that honors each other and honors God as we pursue holiness. God's will is our purity to walk in his Ways. It's interesting. In my study for this passage, I came across this. Uh, if if you have your Bible out, you can look. You probably have a footnote on verse four. Most commentators would say verse four is the most difficult uh, verse to translate in this whole letter. And that if you're going to literally translate it, instead of uh, it actually means uh, learn how to possess his own vessel. And there's actually this whole debate whether Paul here is talking about controlling your body or actually possessing a wife or a husband for yourself. That this gives us the context for how uh, we walk in sexual purity. Is that we control our own body, but yes, we also, how do we do that? Is that God has given us a great outlet for that, which is marriage, and we possess a husband or wife for ourselves and actually can be fulfilled. And so it's, again, it, it just supports this idea of the context on how this is supposed to be fulfilled, that God has given us an outlet, and that is the only appropriate way. But he reinforces this command that we're supposed to control our own body, that we're supposed to walk in sexual purity. For he says, for God has not called you for impurity, but in holiness. That God has called us to this. That God has called us to walk in his ways and to be his people in these ways and to walk in, these, in, in sexual purity. Paul would say this a little differently in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he says, flee from sexual immorality. This other way of living, how the Greeks, how the Greeks do it. Flee from it. Separate yourself from it. Flee from it. For every other sin a man, a person, person commits is outside the body, but a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And Paul, reinforcing this idea in this letter he wrote later to the Corinthians, to Corinthians reinforces the idea that we're supposed to flee from this operation that the world has of sexual morality where anything goes and actually run back to how God has called us. And why do we do this? Do we earn something? Do we achieve something when we walk in His ways? No, we do it. Why? Because He has saved us that we're no longer our own. That He owns us. That we're His. We're called to walk in his ways. Walk in God's will. Not just in sexual purity, but also we're called to walk in God's will and brotherly love. He says, it's now considering brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write to you because you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Again, if we remember where we have been through the the book of 1 Thessalonians, we've seen how Paul has lifted up brotherly love, that the mark of the Christian is actually how well do you love your fellow Christians. That The mark of the Christian community should be this love. And he says, so now remember, what else is God's will for you? To walk in this brotherly love with each other. That when we look together, when we look around at our brothers and sisters in Christ, we actually love them. We cherish them that we have been taught by God to push, to actually go into this community and, and, and be part of it in ways in which we can help lift people up. This means that when we think about all of our relationship relationships with the body of Christ, the gospel needs to win out. But we are still people, aren't we? We still get on each other's nerves. Relationships can become kind of frayed. People bicker. People have their own thoughts. They happen to be different than other people's thoughts. And when we gather together in any kind of body, this happens, right? Conflict ensues. Feelings can get hurt. You might want to withdraw from that body because of that feeling. You might want to start hurting people back because they've hurt you. That all happens in church life. But what are we called to? to? For brotherly love. That we love each other like family. And guess what families do? Maybe your family's better than mine. But what do families do? They fight, they get on each other's nerves. But they know that something deeper than that fight, something deeper than even their nerves, connects them together. And as Christians, part of the body of Christ, part of the family of God, which is not just the same we kind of flow out there, which is truth, because if you are a Christian, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been saved by him, you have been adopted into the family of God and what makes us close together is our common faith that knits us together and our requirement of that is now when we look at each other we have brotherly love for each other. That we see each other as more than just people who sit on the same row or across the room on a Sunday morning. We see each other as family and we love each other. And if we are founded on our belief in Jesus Christ, that's what, what defines us, that means in any and every relationship, the gospel wins out. That when you come into conflict with someone else, the gospel should be on your mind and you realize, I am a sinner. And what God has forgiven me through Jesus Christ is 10,000 times worse than anyone else has offended me. And I can offer forgiveness in Christ. That we let brotherly love win out. And we do that again because we're taught by God to do so. Whether Paul was referring to the command of Jesus in, in, in John 13 about this is a new command I give you, love one another, if you love each other, that's how everyone will know my disciples if you, as you love each other. I don't know. Or if this is actually this understanding that these Thessalonians, these Thessalonians came to as they were processing through what it means to be gospel, that they're taught by God to do this more and more, we see the command here, this is how we operate in a Christian community. We love each other. We bear with each other. We seek to serve one another. We want each other's success more than our own success. We want to be part of that true family, and so God's will is our brotherly love with one another. Walk in God's will. And then he ends this passage with these three weird commands about what God would want them to live and how they live. He says to them that they are supposed to Excuse me. Supposed to uh, aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as you, as we instructed you. It's interesting; these three small little commands tied together about how they should live in this world. They seem kind of weird for us. This is Paul, the great missionary who calls them again and again, be out there in the public square proclaiming Jesus Christ, even if they lock you up. He says, keep going. And now he says, hey, live quietly. Take it easy, guys. Seek to, actually, literally, it means, hey, make your ambition to have no ambition. It's just a weird comment about how they're they're supposed to mind their own affairs and how they're supposed to work with their hands. And so what we have to understand, in the context of this letter, and in the context of actually even 2 Thessalonians, we see that a false belief had crept into this church that Jesus Christ already came. They really thought the end was already over. And so so many Christians were probably being led astray by this thought that they started to do things that they shouldn't be doing. That this false belief led to probably a fervent, Uh, excitement, where they were leading other people astray, where this false belief led them to kind of get into other people's business. This false belief belief, uh, uh, led them to quit their work and just have too much time on their hands and actually were uh, a drain on the church. And so Paul is coming in and actually correcting this false belief and says, hey, this fervent excitement you might feel that's misdirected, watch out for it. That you shouldn't be busy buddies. Actually, he calls them in 2 Thessalonians busy, busy buzzies That they have too much time on their hands. That you should actually not be in each other's business to the extent that you're not welcome anymore. And that you actually should work and not actually be a drain on the Christian community. And we see that really when he starts talking about why would he call for these commands. Is that they can walk properly before outsiders. They can earn respect with uh, people who outside of the church so that the hopefully so that the people outside the church can hear the gospel and that they're not dependent upon anyone. This idea that they're not actually just someone who takes from the local church, the community, and doesn't give back. They don't just take and take and take, but rather that they can actually take care of themselves. So we see these commands of how Paul wants them to walk in orientation towards outside in the church. And again, it's a reinforcement of what God's will is. That we should live in such a way that people should be enticed to know what we believe and come into our community. That we should live in such a way that the community actually benefits from us from being part of it. And is not actually we're not a drain upon it if we're able to do so. And then all these things, he says, walk in God's way. This is how we're supposed to orient our life. That we walk in God's will walk in God's will, and sexual purity, and brotherly love, and how we relate to the church and outsiders, we're all called to walk in God's will. What does that mean for us? Well, the applications throughout all of that are prevalent, I think, for us all to see. But here's two guiding principles. That when we walk in God's will, we live a God-directed life, not a me-directed life. That we walk in God's will, we're actually seeking to how we can please God, how he has called us to live. We're seeking how we can serve and love others. We're seeking their well-being. We're seeking the gospel to be made known. We're seeking that people are taken care of. We're seeking to actually please God in how we orient our life. We're living a God-directed life, not how we would necessarily want to live our life. That means we live actually a fundamentally unselfish life as we think of others first, as we think about God's mission first, as we think about how we can seek his, mission, his kingdom and how we can bring that to wherever it needs to go, how we can support missionaries, how we can support our local church in its context, how we can do all the things he's done for us that actually our focus of life is taken off of ourselves in placed place where it should be in the first place, which is on God and how he calls us to live as well as how he has called us to serve others. So he calls us to live this God-directed life. But another principle is that he calls us to grow in his ways. Because we can read this. And we can read these commands and we can read the New Testament and the Old Testament. We see these commands about God and we see how far away is it that we are from those or how messed up we have made of our life regarding kind of these commands. We can get despair or down on ourselves because we are so far from it. But what this is is a call for growth. Is that when he's talking to these believers, they have not doing this perfectly, but he's encouraging them to take that step of faith and to walk out what they truly believe. And I love it says refrain twice in verse one and then in verse uh, ten. What does he say? And do this more and more. Even where they're doing something very well, he says, do it more and more. In places probably where they were not doing something very well, do it more and more. That we're called to grow in how we live. That we're not called to be complacent with life. That God has called you to follow him. And guess what following does? It's an active movement towards his will revealed to us in scripture. More and more. And more we put it into practice. More and more we take that step. More and more we seek to be his in every area of life. More and more we seek to honor him. More and more we put things in our life under his lordship. More and more we seek to honor him in all things. More and more we seek to be his. Why? Because he loved us first. When there's nothing lovable about us, he sent his son for us. When we were the wicked and wretched, the sinners, the rebels, spitting in his face, wanting nothing to do with God, he sent his son to live the perfect life for us, to die in our place for us. Condemned, he stood. To rise for us, showing that he's truly God, but also showing the new life that's ready and waiting for us right now, and that extends into eternity ascending for us, to sit on the right hand of the Father so he can intercede moment by moment for us. And in view of that great and glorious gospel, the good news of Jesus, we follow. We seek to know God's will through his revealed word. We seek to be his people as we walk in God's will. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word that we can know it, we can see it, we can see you. We can see how you love us, how you move, how you call us to be yours. Lord, I pray for this family. I pray that we can be yours in all that we do. I pray that we can be bold enough to ask where we need help. We can be bold enough to stumble, but we can stumble together as we live together in this community. Lord, I just pray for us that we know where we can find your will, and that is in the Word of God, that we can take it up, read it, know it, understand it, and walk in it. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.